Christ. That was a beautiful song. If you have your Bible with you, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning. We're going to depart from our normal study of the book of Ephesians today in honor of Father's Day. And I'd like to preach from 1 Corinthians 16 verses 13 and 14. Uh, And the title of the sermon this morning is Act Like Men. Act Like Men. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 13 Somewhat of an abrupt uh, statement, he says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Let all your things be done with charity. Let's pray and invite God to teach us this morning. Dear Lord, we come to your word today, uh, seeking your instruction, your guidance. Father, I come especially as a husband, as a father, as a man and the responsibilities that you've given with that, looking for you, Lord, to direct me and strengthen me and to help me in all of my roles. Father, I pray that for my brothers in Christ. And Lord, I pray if there's any here today who does not know Christ, I pray that today would be the day of their new birth, that they would get saved and fulfill that call on their life. Father, we cannot be the men that you want us to be without your divine enablement. And so I pray and ask, Lord, that you would help us to find that in you this morning through the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Quit you like men. That is an old English statement that sounds a little bit odd to our modern ears. And it begs the question, uh, what does it mean exactly? When the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians and it's translated in uh, 1611 and they say, Quit ye like men. Well, depending on uh, which modern Bible translation you read from, it will either say it this way, act like men, or be courageous. Well, those are two different things. So which is it? Is this saying act like men, or is it saying be courageous? Well, if we look at the Greek word, it is translated from a Greek word, adrazomai, and it's a verb. And that verb means to act manly or brave like a man. In fact, it comes from the root word aner, which means biological male. And so the very word that is used here, that is translated uh, in the King James Version, quit you like men, and other translations act like men, it is literally a Greek word that has a root meaning that means man, biological male. And so you might say, well, why does it matter? Isn't it just semantics? What's the difference between saying act like a man or be courageous, right? When uh, our boys were little, uh, the phrase was going around, sometimes we would say cowboy up, right? And uh, just a, a synonym for man up, act like a man, don't act like a little girl. And uh, we, uh, we infused the toxic masculinity into uh, our child rearing, and so uh, I, I'm to blame for that, I suppose. Uh, but, uh, but getting back to the question, why does it matter? Is it just semantics? And I'd say, no, it's more than semantics. It has to do with sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture is a doctrine that says Scripture is sufficient for its own interpretation. 
That is, I don't need a pope, I don't need a commentator, I don't need an outside source to tell me what the Bible means. The Bible tells me what the Bible means. And you say, well, how do I know? We could get ten people in the room and they could all read a verse and they could come out with ten impressions. Yes, they might have ten opinions, but there's one interpretation. And the way we discover that interpretation is by comparing Scripture with Scripture. And when we compare the words of Scripture with the words of Scripture, then it will define its own words and its own terms so that we can say the clear, consistent teaching of Scripture is this, period. Now, it might have multiple applications, but there is one interpretation of Scripture. It matters because the inspired Word of God has high consequences if we get it wrong. You say, well... Well, what, what, what if we just say, be courageous, and we don't make it all masculine and everything. We're just trying to encourage the men and the women. Well, the problem is, is that that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying here, to men, act like men. And the consequences are high if we get these things wrong, because if you look through Scripture, you will find that Jesus scolded the Sadducees and told them that they made a huge error because they neglected to pay attention to verb tense, right? If you remember, just uh, stay with me for a second here as I, I explain the importance of this. In a passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 12, Jesus was encountering some Sadducees, and these were people who didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they thought that they had a, a question that would stump Jesus and say, well, if a man married a woman and he died without a child and her brother marries him, and then there's seven brothers, and all seven of them had her as wife, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And so they thought that they really had a theological argument that, that, would, that would stump him. And he explains to them that it's not the same in the kingdom as it is on earth, uh, that we're not married or given in marriage. But then he goes on and points this out, and he says, he says, you are making a great error because you've neglected to pay attention to the words of Scripture when God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what he was indicating was that by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was to say that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive after they were dead. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only that he was their God when they were alive on earth. And so Jesus says, hey, if you would have just paid attention to the verb tense, you would not have made this grave theological mistake. How about another one? In Galatians, the Apostle Paul points out that God made a promise to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. And he goes on to say, he didn't say a promise to Abraham's seeds, as in many, but seed, as in one, which is Christ. So again, when we're looking at the words of Scripture, it matters what the verb tense is. It matters whether it is a singular or a plural word. Jesus says, if you get this wrong, if you don't understand it was singular and not plural, you will miss the fact that it was a promise of a Messiah. And so I say to you, if past or present tense matters, and if singular or plural form matters, then most assuredly it matters that God used the word man in our text. It matters. It matters that he said, act like men. Comport yourself like men. Quit you like men. 
As the Apostle Paul concludes his first letter to the Corinthian church, he is uh, addressing a few different issues. He's talking about the collection. He's talking about a visit. He's talking about Apollo's coming. And in the midst of that, he has this word to the men at the church of Corinth. Hey, watch ye. Stand fast. Quit you like men. Be strong. Let everything that you do be done in love. This is a call to the male members of the church to act like men. Can, can I say to you that this type of talk seems almost out of place in our day and time? Right? We, we can't even, at least on the record, give a definition of what a man or a woman is lest the culture police come after us. It's not that complicated, folks. A man is an adult biological male, and a woman is an adult biological female, period. And so I say to you that this is important because God had a word for men in Scripture. This was not just needed in the Corinthian church, it's needed in every church. It's needed in our church. The idea of manhood is in a crisis today. What does it mean to be a man? And what should a man be like? And well, how do we avoid toxic masculinity? And how do we, how do we raise children to, to be what they should be? And I say to you, there are many contributing factors that have distorted a proper view of masculinity. Uh, Just to name a few, absentee fathers have contributed to a distorted view of masculinity. The the very fact that there were men who fathered children but who were not fathers has affected people's view of masculinity. Uh, Abusive husbands. There were those who stayed in the home but they abused the people in the home. That's a distorted view of manhood. Uh, emotionally detached men. There are plenty of men who are not absentee and they're not abusive, but they are withdrawn and they operate almost uh, in isolation within their own home. And I'm telling you, that has affected people's view of masculinity. There are others who are womanizers who take advantage of women. There are homosexuality and transgenderism. By the way, masculinity was in crisis before the LGBTQ movement ever came along. As a matter of fact, I'm the product of uh, of an absentee father. And it put my life into a crisis for a long time. I didn't understand what a man was, what a man was supposed to do, how a man should behave. I had a lot of bad ideas about it, but I didn't have the right understanding of it. The combination of these things has left many people without a fixed or healthy example of what a man should be. Stepping back from social constructs, Christians must ask an important question. What is God's concept of manhood? I don't really need to know what the sociologist concept of manhood is. I don't need to know what the feminist concept of man is. I don't need to know what another man's concept of manhood is. What I need to know is what is God's concept of man. 
You see, after all, our claim to be Christian and our confession of Christ as Lord means that we recognize God as our ultimate authority. That means that if the entire world says something else about what men ought to be, I'm supposed to go with what God says. God is our ultimate authority on all matters in life, including morality, ethics, and even manhood. And again, it's connected to the sufficiency of Scripture. You see, because sufficiency of Scripture doesn't just mean that uh, Scripture is sufficient to interpret itself. It means that Scripture is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. It, It means that this book gives me the information that I need to navigate life according to God's way. And so if I am looking at Scripture and I'm asking the question, what does it mean to be a man? I have a power-packed verse or two verses that really sum it up pretty succinctly. And so I want to give it to you in six statements, if I can, this morning. Number one, be men. Be men. What is he saying to these Corinthian male church members? He's saying, be Men, can I say to you this morning that being a man is not a bad thing to be apologized for? It is actually a God thing. We live in a day and time where it seems like everybody is apologizing for their gender or for their heritage or for their ethnicity. God forgive me, I was born a white hillbilly. I can't help that. So why is it that we feel that we need to apologize for these things. And we even find that with men. Good men seem to be retreating because of this cultural war against manhood. And I'm telling you, being a man is not something to be apologized for. It's a God thing. If that's what God made you to be, then embrace it. If you have the XY chromosome, then embrace it. You are created by your creator to be a man. Genesis 1.27, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he created them male and female in his image and in his likeness. We are both image bearers of God, women and men. It doesn't mean that one is better than the other. We are both created equal in the image of God. So if God made you to be a man, be a man. And if it made you to be a woman, be a woman. Don't rebel against it. Embrace it. Because I can tell you this, God has a concrete concept of what a man is. It is not fluid. To use the language of the day, we're told now that gender is fluid. And that you might be born biological male, but, but you may feel that you are more female than you are male. And so gender is really a fluid idea that you decide for yourself at any stage of your life. But wait a minute. Does that agree with Scripture? If you remember, in the book of Job, Job goes through great persecution. And then his three friends show up. And they have these philosophical, theoretical, theological discussions. And they're telling Job what they think is wrong. And Job is defending himself, telling them what he thinks is wrong. And and really what happens is they all begin to kind of take the place of God and, and, and speak as if they were God, they would do this or they would do that. Well, God shows up in Job 38. 
And in Job 38, God begins to ask Job a series of questions. And from Job 38 to Job 42, God asks Job 84 questions, to which Job has no answer. But in Job 38, verse 3, God himself says this. Not Paul, not the apostle Peter, not any other man. God himself says to Job, gird up your loins like a man. He not only says it in Job 38.3, he says it again in Job 40, verse 7. Gird up your loins like a man. I'm telling you, God has a concrete concept of what manhood is. It is not fluid in the mind of God. If God created you a male, then you are a man. If he created you female, then you are a woman. And no amount of surgery or pharmaceutical drugs will change that. It is embedded in every part of your DNA structure. Fill in the blank, if you would. God became a... Well, if it's a bad thing to be a man, did God do a bad thing by becoming a man? No. He's the God-man. He became a man. Now, again, this is no slander on women. This is, not a, this is not the little rascal women haters club up in here. But it is a reminder to you and I that if God made us to be males, then he intended us to be males. And that just because there are some bad men, it doesn't mean that being a man is bad. Being a man is a good thing if that's what God created you to be. Jesus, God, became a man. What about this? Uh, what do all the prophets, apostles, and writers of Scripture have in common? They're all male. They're all men. And again, it's no slander against women. I'm just pointing out the fact that it's not a bad thing to be a man. If it was such a bad thing to be a man, why would God use some 40 human penmen to write His holy word? And so if you're a man, be a man. Being a man is not a bad thing. God created us different on purpose. Men aren't like women, and women aren't like men. And my, how I am thankful for that. Every time I kiss my wife. And so the first word, be men. Just be men. Be what God made you to be. God programmed you a certain way. There's no reason to be ashamed of that or shy away from that. Be what God made you to be. But... Just because God made us men doesn't mean that we don't have any obstacles, pitfalls, or hang-ups. And so this verse goes on to tell us a few other things that men should be. Number two, be watchful. Be watchful. It says, watch ye. Be on watch. We are called men to be the watchmen. We are supposed to be the watchmen for our family and for our church God put something in men that he didn't put in women. And that's why, to our shame, most wars are waged by, you want to guess? Men. What's the matter with these men, right? Most fights on the playground, men, boys, right? There's something in men that God put in us to be 
warriors, to be fighters. And when that is abused, it does great damage. But when it is used rightly, it is the greatest, one of the greatest forms of protection our society has. You say, what's the matter with the young men in our society that they are going around shooting up places? And one of the problems is there haven't been any grown men in their lives who taught them how to be men and restrained their ideologies. Be watchmen. You and I have guard duty, men. God assigned that to us. If he's given you a wife and he's given you children, then guard your home, guard your TV, guard your family. If he's made you the member of a church, guard its theology, guard its membership. He made us the watchmen. We're supposed to be the one who run towards the gunfire, not away from it. God built us to protect. Can I share with you another verse from God's Word? In 1 Peter 3, 7, God refers to the women as the weaker vessel. Again, that's no slight on women. It is more like saying that they are delicate, they are precious, like, like a fine vase that has to be handled with care. It's not a club to beat things with. It's something that needs to be cared for. And so God gave that responsibility to men. In fact, the, the term that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, uh, watch ye, is a militaristic terminology. It, it means that we must be on guard. We must be on the lookout. What do we need to be on the lookout for? Well, in other places, Paul told us to look out for the camouflage traps of the devil. Those snares, those things that look benign, but we understand that if we step into them, we get caught. And so we need men who are on the lookout for the things that would be a snare to ourselves, to our children, to our wives, to our churches. Not only that, he tells us to beware of the entanglements of the world like soldiers we aren't supposed to entangle ourselves with this world you and I are on duty we don't have that opportunity we don't have that luxury we must be on the watch and I tell you men we've got to guard ourselves because there are many things out there that will tempt you and if you are not on guard they can slay you the third thing that he says to men is be faithful. Watch ye stand fast in the faith. Stand fast in the faith. Uh, we might say stand firm in the faith. The idea that he is communicating here is that men need to be faithful. Standing firm in the faith is only possible if we're grounded in the faith. If you have a very shallow faith, how are you going to stand firm in the faith? If your root system does not go below the ground, how are you going to stand firm in the faith? Men, we need to be faithful to God. We need to be grounded in the faith. We are called of God to be the leaders in our home and in our church. Right now... I think I've got four couples who are getting married, right? Nolan and Holly get married this, this weekend, and then I've got another couple in August and another in October, and 
another in December. And so I require pre-marriage counseling for, for people who ask me to, to marry them. And so one of the things I talk about are the roles of men and women in the home and how that God has given men the responsibility to lead in the home. You say, what does that mean? What does it mean to be the leader? Does it mean that you're, you're kind of like the general and you're bossing everybody around and lining everybody up? No, I'll tell you what it means to be the leader in your home. It means to be the chief follower of Christ. That's really the greatest description of what it means for you and I to be leaders in our home. It means that we are the first followers. It means that we're pursuing a relationship with Christ. We are in the Word. We are in prayer. We are setting the example. Hey, if you make that your priority, then you will be the leader that God wants you to be in your home. And so we need to be faithful. We need to persevere. Don't quit. Don't waver. Keep on keeping on. Life gets hard. Yes, sometimes it is burdensome having all the responsibilities of manhood on your shoulders. And there's a lot of young men who don't want to step into that. That's why they're still living in their mom's and dad's basements at 35 years old. And they haven't stepped out in the world because they don't want all the responsibility that comes with it. I understand there's a weight of responsibility that comes with it, but we need to be faithful in the responsibility that God's given to us. Has God given to you a wife? Then be faithful to your wife. Has God blessed you with children? Then be faithful to your children. Look, you may not feel like you've got a lot of abilities, but you can be faithful. Listen, I have felt the inadequacy of my parenting more times than I can count. Man, my kids start doing math that I can't even figure out. But you know what? I can be faithful. I may not be able to teach them everything that they want to learn about baseball or basketball or wrestling or math or whatever it may be. But you know what? I can be there and I can walk with them and I can listen to them and I can journey with them. I can help them get the resources and direct them. I can be faithful. We need to be faithful to God. We need to be faithful to our family. We need to be faithful to our wives. Men, be faithful, men. The fourth, be strong. Be strong. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men. Be strong. This is no locker room speech. This isn't the coach at halftime trying to pump the team up to go back out and take the field. This is God's inspired word to men. It's in the present tense when he says be strong, so it means increase strength, grow stronger. Hey, you know, we saw from the recent NCAA Women's Swimming Championship that men have more muscle density and strength growth capacity. Why? Because we're built stronger. It's genetics. Male men have more muscle density. We have more strength growth capacity. And that's why if you take a man and let him compete with women, he may be 435th among men his age group, but he'll be number one among the women's competition. Why? Because... God built us differently. He built us for strength. Now, that's no, no diss on women. That's not to say that women are not stronger, that they can't get stronger, or that there aren't some women who are stronger than some men. 
is simply to say that God built us structurally different and he made men stronger. However, we are not supposed to be static in our strength. We're supposed to increase in strength. Don't be satisfied with the level of commitment that you have to Christ at this day and time. Seek to increase your strength in Christ. Seek to increase your faith in Christ. We ought to be pursuing this growth in our faith and in Christ. God says to us, be strong. Increase your strength, men. Make yourselves stronger. I'm a... I'm a hobby weightlifter, and so I say that. I, I just it's, it's my hobby, so I don't fish, I don't golf, I don't hunt, but I like to lift weights. And so what I've learned about weightlifting is that it's a pursuit. Like you start at a certain level, you might be strong, but if you want to get stronger, there's a couple of key ingredients that you've got to include. One of them is proper nutrition. I discovered uh, recently that I was uh, under on my protein. And so there's a formula on how many grams of protein you need per pound of fat in your body. If you want to grow muscle, you have to increase your protein. And so if you get the proper nutrition and you add in resistance training, you can increase strength. If one of those two things are missing, then you're not going to increase strength. If you don't have the proper nutrition, but you're resistance training, you're not necessarily going to get stronger. And if you have the proper nutrition, but you're not resistance training, you're not necessarily going to get stronger. You know, what's interesting is that this seems to be a correlation to the spiritual life too. If you and I, as men, want to get stronger spiritually, we need the proper nutrition and we need resistance training. What is the proper nutrition? It's the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If you want to get stronger spiritually as a man, you can't do it without a diet of the Word. Listen, coming to church is good. And getting the Word preached and taught to you in Sunday school and Sunday morning is good. But you need more than that. You need a daily diet of God's Word. You need to read the Word for yourself every single day and get that proper nutrition. And the other aspect is this resistance training. Because you know what you'll find in the Bible? God never just says, read the Word. He says, do the Word. Hey, get out there and exercise it. Put it to work. Use it, and you will see yourself grow. So in the same sense, men, if you want to get stronger spiritually in your faith, read God's Word and then live God's Word. Obey God's Word. Get out and do what God's Word says, and you will grow spiritually strong. The fifth and final statement that is made to men is in verse 14, and that is be loving. Let all your things be done with charity or with love. Did you know that God never says this to women? Read your Bible, search it over. He never says to women, love your husbands. He never has to command them to do that. Why? Because it comes natural to them. There's something built in to women who seem to be more uh, expressive in their love. Just think, about, just think about it this way. Think about what God says to each member of the family in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. Husbands love, wives submit, children obey. 
Why does God say that? Because he's addressing the struggle areas, the areas in which we struggle. And so men struggle with this expression of love. Children struggle with obeying. Sometimes women struggle with giving up control. There are areas that we have this natural inclination to struggle with. Did you know that God actually says to men in Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them? Man, how would you like that as your greeting card? Honey, I love you and I'm not bitter at you anymore. So why does God say, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them? The word bitter means caustic. It's really a descriptive word. It means capable of burning, corroding, or destroying live tissue. And so God says to men, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter or caustic towards them. As men, we're not always good at expressing our love. You know, we are good at expressing our frustration. I'm real good at expressing my frustration. And you know, the strangest things get me frustrated. Like, I, I, just the strangest things get me frustrated. <laughs> and I can be frustrated, I can be frustrated at a 1987 Dodge that I'm working on in my backyard right now. And I come into the house and I express that frustration to the people in that house. Not about the jaw, not about the dodge out in the yard, about whatever just happens in the house. Where's this? Why is that? Why didn't you do this? You see, you and I as men do have this tendency to be much more vocal in our frustration, our anger, our complaint, our criticism than we are in our expressions of love. And so God says to men, be loving. Being a man isn't rough talking. Being a man isn't not showing emotion. Being a man isn't uh, never being tender. Being a man is being loving. If you want to be the man that God wants you to be, then he wants you to be loving. The old children saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me is simply not true. People live and die by words. Your wife lives and dies by your words. Your children live and die by your words, men. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. How much? None. Zero. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Oh, if you're a man here today, you ought to thank God for making you a man. And you ought to embrace what God made you and realize that he created you to be what he wants you to be, but that there are some things as men that we need to do. We need to be watchful. We need to be faithful. We need to be strong. And we need to be loving. Here's the good news, men. God built you for this. And in Christ, you 
can do it. You can do everything that God made you for. Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. On this Father's Day, as we focus on men, we need to realize that we have a place in God's plan. We've got a place in this society that men are desperately needed. But godly men, Christ-like men, faithful men, loving men, strong men, men who will guard and protect and men who will stand up and fight when need to. Let us be the men that our generation needs. Let us be the men that set the example for our sons and daughters and grandchildren. Men, let's ask God to help us be what he called us to be. Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for your word and for the way that it speaks directly to us. How that it it addresses the areas that need to be addressed. That it doesn't it doesn't sugarcoat it or try to dilute it. But it speaks to us the way we need to be spoken to. Father, I understand that there's a wide range of men that you didn't stamp us out in cookie-cutter fashion and made us all in one profile, and that our interests and hobbies and behaviors can range tremendously. But there is one unifying aspect, and that is that we have been given the male DNA, and that we have been created as men, and that as men we've been given certain responsibilities. Oh, Father, we realize and know that we are inadequate to live up to all of those, and that's why we need Christ. We need Christ in us, and we need Christ through us, and we believe that through Christ we can do all things. And so, Lord, I pray for the men today that came here to church discouraged. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray for the ones that came tired. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray for the men in this church who are faithfully serving you and loving their families and I pray Lord that you would strengthen them and encourage them I pray for protection from temptation and enticement Lord I pray and ask that you would help us to strive to be more like Christ in our homes in our church and on our jobs and I pray that in Jesus name amen